Hello, and welcome to the Steve Poos Benson Podcast. It's good to come to you here on a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful spring afternoon. This is episode 21. I'm going to call this episode The Shootings, because that's what I'm thinking about today. I'm thinking about the 20th anniversary of the shootings at Columbine High School. While this is Holy Week and we're getting ready for Easter, next Saturday is the 20th anniversary of the shootings. And so I wanted to spend this podcast thinking about that and talking about that day that happened uh, 20 years ago. You know, that shootings, those shootings shaped and formed my life. I tried to uh, heal the community of Columbine and Littleton. I've worked to heal the congregation of Columbine United Church. But I've also worked to heal my own self and come to an understanding of what happened 20 years ago. How did those two boys, how did their life go so astray that they could perpetrate such evil upon a high school and take the lives of so many people? I've tried to understand it. You know, I wrote a book called Sent to Soar, and a part of that uh, part of that book, the message of that book, I wrote a chapter about the shootings and my participating in the participation in the shootings. I was a first responder that day. And so to honor that day and my thoughts about it, I wanted to read a bit of this chapter from Sent to Soar. You know, Sent to Soar, the basic premise is, is that we have been sent into the world to fulfill a divine promise, a divine purpose in the world. And part of my divine purpose was realized on that day, April 20th, 1999. So for the first time ever, I want to read to you a part of this chapter from Sent to Soar, April 20th, 1999. You know, it started as a beautiful spring day. After a cold Colorado winter, the air finally softened. The lawns began to green and crocuses and tulips splashed color along sidewalks and driveways. It was 10, 12 a.m. I had just checked my watch. The church staff meeting was over and I was heading to my truck. A group of pastors was gathering to swap preaching ideas at a church across town. As I walked down the hallway, my cell phone rang. This was back when cell phones had just begun to enter the public market. I had convinced the church to buy them for the staff as they would enhance our ability to communicate with each other. This your response. And kids didn't have phones stuck in their backpacks. This all changed after Columbine. The call came to my phone. I flicked open the cover and heard my wife's panicked voice. Steve, they're shooting. They're shooting at the high school. Oh my God, my God. She was at a local bagel shop across from Clement Park. A carload of kids had piled into the store, screaming and crying. As my wife yelled into the phone, I thought to myself, it's happened, here, in our community. I told her that I was going to the high school and I would keep her posted. I yelled down the hall, there's a shooting at the high school. I'm heading over. I told Dot, my secretary, stay by the phones, watch the news, and keep me updated via the phone. Holly, the youth minister, Michael, the minister of music, and Ken, our minister of visitation, ran to the truck with me. We headed south on Platte Canyon, turned right onto Coal Mine Avenue, and raced toward Pierce Street. When I turned right onto Pierce, I saw Pam, a church member who had run from her home, standing on the corner. Her face was ashen. A police officer had stopped her from going any further. She saw me and yelled out, Oh my God, Steve, it's happened. The policewoman stopped me. 
I told her that I was a pastor in the community. I knew these kids and was going to the school. She said I could go only as far as the police cars up ahead, but no further. As you head north on Pierce, the road dips and then rises a block from the student parking lot. Police cars were nose-to-nose in the road blocking access. I knew these neighborhoods and was not going to be stopped. I knew the back way that leads directly to the main entrance of the school. There were hundreds of terrified teenagers running towards us. I turned around and looked at Holly and Michael and said, Get out of the truck and run towards those kids. Holly looked back at me, fighting panic. She asked, What am I supposed to do? Grab the kids, get them down and away from the line of fire. Get them as far away from the school as possible. You have your cell phone. We'll call each other every 30 minutes. Michael looked at me and said, Steve, I'm just an organist. Not today, I said. Not today, you're not. Not today. My lasting memory of this moment is looking over my shoulder as I made a U-turn and watched Holly and Michael grab kids, getting them down away from the line of fire. Holly later told me that she could hear the ricochet of bullets pinging off of swing sets in Leewood Park, across from where she and the kids were huddling. Holly and Michael were some of the true heroes that day. My next thought was to wind my way over to the north entrance of the school across from Clement Park. I really had no idea what I was going to do when I got there. I just knew I was supposed to go. Clement Park surrounds the school, and many of the kids used its slots to park their cars. As I drove, I saw swarms of kids running blindly down the street. I saw a member of my church, a teacher, running with them. I yelled at her, Sally, what's happening inside? We heard gunshots. I grabbed the kids and just started running. Keep running, I said. Keep running deeper into the neighborhood. Eventually, I turned left on West Leewood Drive and was stopped by police. I pulled the truck over. Ken and I hopped out and the two of us immediately ran over to the police. I told them that I was a pastor and knew the school, the teachers, and the kids. I can be of help. Where is the command center? They let me through and pointed up the road. Ken and I ran around police cars parked haphazardly along the road. Above us, news helicopters were buzzing. The command center was nothing more than a series of cars parked bumper to bumper. Police officers from every surrounding district had responded. I asked one of the officers if he knew what was going on in the school. He told me that a group of black radicals had taken over the school and were holding kids hostage. What? You've got to be kidding me. The officer turned away from me. I thought this was ludicrous, the not-so-latent racism that permeates aspects of our white suburb had raised its ugly head. I'm not a police officer or a military person. I had nothing on me to signify who I was. I felt shaky as I stepped up to the officer who appeared to be in charge. Once again, I repeated that I was a minister. I had worked in this community for 20 years. I knew the school, the teachers, and the parents. I could help them. The officer held my stare. Behind me, a SWAT team began piling out of a van, locking and loading automatic rifles waiting for their orders. Seriously, 
I can be of help, I repeated. What a contrast. SWAT officers armed with AR-15s, and I am armed with the notion that I have been sent. The lead officer looked at me and said, Go to the library across Clement Park. I've been told there's a mess of people there and it's total chaos. Go see what you can do. I nodded in agreement and Ken and I ran toward the library. The Columbine Community Library sits at the northwest entrance of Clement Park. As Ken and I jogged the half mile, we ran into two freshman boys dressed in blue gym shorts and gray t-shirts wandering around. One had a weightlifting belt draped over his shoulder. Their faces were pimpled, their hair was mussed, and they were relaxed as if simply enjoying a stroll on a spring morning. I asked them their names and if they knew what was happening inside the school. We were in gym class lifting weights. Someone ran in and said there were two guys shooting and we needed to get out. So we just left the gym. We didn't know where to go, so we just started walking around the park looking for something to do. I asked them if they were okay. They looked at me like I was a little nuts. Of course we're okay. Why? It felt like a Falstaff moment from Shakespeare. They were two innocent boys oblivious to the world crashing in around them. I told them to stick with us. As we all jogged to the library, I called the group of pastors I was supposed to be meeting with. I wanted them to come and meet me in the library. The secretary answered and I explained what was happening. I asked to be transferred to the group of pastors and told her it was an emergency. I needed their help in responding to the school shootings at Columbine High School. She told me to wait. Several minutes lapsed. As I was jogging, I was thinking, what's taking so long? She came back on the line and told me that the pastors had elected to stay in their meeting. They want to prepare for their Sunday sermons. I was dumbfounded. I tried to hold back the sarcasm as I told the secretary, tell them to preach on the Good Samaritan, and snap the phone closed. In every moment there's a bias. The Creator acts in the middle of our circumstances. We're all given the freedom to choose how to respond. Use it and choose it. And they made their choice. When Ken and I pulled open the library doors, we entered a chaotic scene. Approximately 2,000 kids attended Columbine High School. In a matter of moments, the majority of them had fled the buildings, and there were approximately 4,000 parents flocking toward the school trying to find their teenagers. The television news stations were telling parents to go to either the Columbine Library or Leewood Elementary School. As I looked around the room, there were several hundred parents, some crying, others looking shocked and asking if anyone had seen their child. About a hundred kids had found their way to the library, and many were, more were pouring in each moment. As the numbers in the building grew, the tension was building toward panic. I looked for anyone in, in authority to bring order. There were no librarians to be found. There was one police officer standing in the corner. I was amazed that no one was doing anything to help calm the crowd. I called my wife, who was a trauma therapist. Hey, I don't know where you are or what you're doing, but you need to get to the Columbine Library. It's mayhem in here, and I need your help. 
I then walked over to the police officers and said, Okay, do you mind if I do something here? I was sent here by the officer in charge at the high school. He gave me a puzzled look and said, What are you going to do? I'm not quite sure yet. Just stand by me and make me look official. I took a breath, thought about looking like a fool, and stepped up on a library table. I looked over the crowd and shouted, Hey! Hey, can I have your attention? The crying and screaming continued. The police officer put his fingers to his lips and emitted a piercing whistle that got everyone's attention. Listen to the guy on the table, he shouted. My knees felt a bit wobbly as I sucked up my best I-know-what-I'm-doing voice and introduced myself. I told the crowd that we needed to restore order. We're going to figure this out, I said. First thing, no one cries alone in here. If you're standing beside someone who's upset, hold them until we get this figured out. People started moving towards those who were visibly shaken. I then told them where I had been and what I knew up to that point. Let's start by trying to figure out who's in this building. Parents, if you have your kid, please go to this side of the room. I pointed over to where the students had gathered. Teenagers, if you don't have a parent, stand over here by the officer. If there's a teacher in the room, please come and sit with these kids. Parents, if you're still looking for your child, please stand over by the librarian's desk. I was shocked as people started following my orders. The officer looked up at me and said, keep it up. I yelled across the room at the librarian's desk. Do you have any butcher paper? If so, let's roll out a couple of large strips and tape them up on the walls. Parents, write your name on this sheet of paper. Kids, you write your names on that sheet of paper. Here are the felt pens. Let's get going. My cell phone rang. It was Holly. She told me that she and Michael were fine, that they had made their way to over to Leewood Elementary School, where there were hundreds of kids and parents. I told them what I was doing in the library and suggested they start doing the same. Let's see if we can help parents and kids find each other. Ideas about how to respond started flowing into my head. Parents, who has a cell phone? About ten hands went up. Come over to the students group and have them call their parents. Ken, our pastor of visitation, began working through the crowd, holding parents' hands and praying with those who were shaking and upset. Another officer entered the building. It was Eric, who had been raised in my church. I had confirmed him. He was with the Aurora police on the other side of the city, Seeing him brought a huge smile to my face. Eric said, I was off duty and called to offer my assistance. They sent me over here to the library. Whatever you're doing, it's working. Keep it going. Eric stood by me through the rest of the afternoon in the library. It was simply amazing to have a kid from the church, now a young adult, a police officer standing behind, beside me. Was it a coincidence that he was here? I believe it was a response to divine movement sweeping over all of us. Busloads of kids were pouring into the library. Parents, hundreds of them, began filling the library. I stood on my table and kept on shouting directions. A sense of collaboration filled the room. Parents helped other parents list their names. By this time, my wife had arrived. 
As she walked into the room, she met a trauma detective from a police department that she hadn't seen in years. Was it a coincidence that at one time they had done a tremendous amount of work together? They had an immediate rapport and began attending to the parents and kids who were weeping. Suddenly, a woman came into the library with huge carts overflowing with drinks, cookies, and pastries. Here's some food, she said. It's all free. Come and get what you need. It was a local businesswoman who had spent hundreds of dollars on groceries and brought them to the library. She told me she was sitting in her office watching the news and knew she had to do something. When she heard that a large group was in the library, she had an idea. Food. They'll need food. She was compelled to get up out of her chair and act. It could have been just another coincidence, but I believe that something else had inspired her to join the rising tide of life. It may have felt like a small thing, but as the kids began devouring the drinks and cookies, it was like manna from heaven. From my tabletop, I saw another church member, Kathy Ireland, walk into the library. Kathy, I yelled, do you have your kids? I found Maggie, she said, but I have no idea where Patrick is. We'll find him, Kathy. I'm sure he's okay. He could be over at Leewood Elementary. There's another huge group there. At this point, none of us knew that Patrick had been shot twice in the head and once in the foot in the school library. Patrick was a young man who climbed out of the library window and fell into the arms of the Lakewood SWAT team. The SWAT officers had climbed on top of a Loomis armored truck they had pressed into duty. It was a television clip that ran thousands of times over the ensuing years. As my wife began working with the police detective, names of the wounded kids were being reported. They gave me the names and I asked these parents to join the detective and the therapist in the adjacent office. A sudden hush filled the room as parents knew they were being singled out for a reason. It couldn't be good news. When a wail came from one of the offices, parents outside silently began weeping as they knew what it meant. We had to get these parents to the hospital. I asked for volunteers. Immediately, strangers volunteered to drive parents to the hospitals where their kids were being treated. The library was filling to capacity. The police sealed off the building, prohibiting any more adults from entering. They were, however, allowing all teenagers to enter. As the teenagers were shepherded, shepherded in, we added their names to the list, gave them something to eat, and kept trying to match names with parents. Holly called me from Leewood Elementary. We're thinking that you have kids over there and we have their parents over here. How can we connect them? Let me read you the names of the kids that I have, I said. I began listing the names off the butcher paper. I can't hear you, Holly yelled into the phone. There's too much noise. As I stood on the tabletop, we brainstormed a solution. Outside the library, every television station from the city had set up cameras. I took the list and told the reporters what was happening in the library and that we needed their help. They switched on their cameras, and I read the name of each teenager we had on our list. The group over at Leewood Elementary watched the news station and was able to match parents with kids. Eric told me that the main incident center was being moved to Leewood Elementary School. 
We need to move all these kids and parents two miles east. Ken, Eric, and I were brainstorming different ideas for moving everyone, using parents to drive kids and so on, when suddenly several school buses pulled up. What a relief. We loaded the kids on the buses and told the parents to drive or walk. My wife was still working with the detective. I told her that I was walking to Leewood Elementary and that we would meet up later. We hugged each other and left. As I walked, I called Dot back at the church. She said she was being bombarded with phone calls. We scheduled a community worship service for that evening. My mind was reeling with the events of the day. Had this really happened to us? One thought kept ringing in my brain. Jesus telling me, you will be a minister to my people. I fought back the tears and just walked on. At Leewood Elementary, there was a tearful reunion as Holly, Michael, Ken, and I hugged each other. I met other church members and former staff members who had all gathered to support one another. The word spread that Patrick Ireland had been shot and was in critical condition. We were told that Kathy and John, his parents, were already at the hospital. We all looked at one another, grief-stricken. One of the Ireland's friends crumpled to the ground. We helped her up and just held one another for a few moments. I have seen many things in my years as a pastor. None of them can compare to the relief of watching parents reuniting with their teenagers that day. However, I have also seen nothing emptier than watching the numbers of parents dwindle down, those remaining filled with a sick sense of dread. I offered my continued assistance, but the sheriff told me that the building was being closed and our help was no longer needed. As the April sun began to set, District Attorney Dave Thomas started to walk to the police command center. Pastor Don and I walked with him. We were all beyond exhausted as the adrenaline of the day began to wane. It was then that I asked Dave if Don and I could go to the building. I had anointed hundreds of people who were dying or dead, as this is a significant rite of our faith. I asked Dave if I could go anoint the kids. Dave thought about it and shook his head. Pastor Don and I ended up the exhausting day on the bluff overlooking the school, praying and weeping. The second day. The 21st of April was just as chaotic as the 20th. National Network set up huge vans, generators, lights, and the radio towers. Thousands of people from across the city began pouring into Clement Park. Hundreds lined up to walk to the top of Rebel Hill, the bluff above the school. The cars belonging to some of the murdered kids were still parked in Clement Park. They were now adorned with roses, cards, candles, and bears. Teenagers walked about dazed and weeping. I had called all the pastors I knew and asked them to come to the park to be with people. As far as I know, only one responded. Use it and choose it. One. Everybody has to choose how they're going to respond in the midst of a crisis. In the years since the shootings, I have talked with hundreds of religious leaders, encouraging them to always take the risk and go where people are hurting. My cell phone rang. 
The voice on the other end of the tone of the was the the voice. Excuse me. The my cell phone rang. The voice on the other end had the tone of an old friend. Steve. Yes. This is Stone Phillips' secretary from Dateline. I held the phone at arm's distance, looking at it like it might bite my ear. Uh, yeah? Really? How can I help you? Well, Steve, we were told that you played a big part in yesterday's tragedy, and we want you on our show tomorrow. You're kidding. No, I'm serious. We want you on Dateline. I hate to admit it, but my ego began to swell. Just think, I was going to be on network news. I was going to be recognized for the work that I did. It's something that I know personally and wrestle with daily, my ego. There's no greater impediment to the work of God than one's own ego. Mine was just getting ready to stand in the way. However, Steve, she said, we don't want you to come alone. I hesitated. You don't? No, we want you to bring John and Kathy Ireland with you. I was confused. How had they figured out that I was the Ireland's pastor? I responded to Mr. Phillips' secretary. So, you want me to contact the Ireland's and invite them to come on Dateline. Is that right? Yes, we were hoping that since you're their pastor, they might trust you more than us and would then agree to join you on the show. I don't always say or do the right thing. I don't always use it and choose it appropriately. This time, however, I think I got it right. Uh, no, thank you. What? You don't want to come on Dateline? No. No, thank you. Well, Steve, you're missing quite the opportunity to share your story with the nation. You're going to be approached by several other networks, all I ask is that you can reconsider and give me a call first. I said, I'm honored that you would consider me for your show, but no, thank you. Don't worry. I won't speak to other networks, and please don't call me again. As I closed my phone, I had this overwhelming desire to take a shower. That afternoon, I drove to St. Anthony Hospital, where Patrick Ireland had just been rushed where he fell from the window. I wanted to see John and Kathy, not to tell them about Dateline's offer, but to regain a sense of balance and purpose. The hospital was packed with kids sitting in vigil outside Patrick's room. For the next several days, I would come to visit and sit with the family. Later that week when I visited Pat, his head was wrapped in cotton gauze and bandages, his face and eyes were swollen. Language was difficult for him. He looked at us, looked at me, and said, Forgive them. Please forgive them. Kathy said, Why should I forgive them? Patrick responded, Because they didn't know what they were doing. I was silent. This young man had just been shot in the head twice. Bullet fragments were embedded in his skull. His foot was torn apart. Two crazed teenagers had murdered his friends and tried to do the same to him. Yet he spoke the most profound words I had ever heard. Over the next year, 
television networks around the nation asked for interviews. Eventually, I agreed to be a part of a reflection piece sponsored by 2020. It was less than a stellar experience. I can't remember the interviewer from 2020. All I remember is that it was intellectual swordplay. He wanted me to reveal information that I felt was confidential, and I refused to budge. He had heard a sermon that I had preached on forgiveness the month before. He asked me if on tape, if it was really any of my business to challenge people to forgive after a massacre like the Columbine shootings. Who was I to preach on forgiveness, he asked. I thought of Patrick Ireland, now in Craig Hospital. I looked the interviewer in the face and I said, If it's none of my business to preach about forgiveness, then I have no business being in this business. I was told that statement never made the peace. I will never know. I never watched the show. The shootings at Columbine challenged me to my core. While the day of the shootings was filled with adrenaline, the years that followed were filled with the slow pain of trying to make sense of it all. Part of my healing was trying to understand how it happened and how to move forward. I am far from having all the answers. As I worked through my own emotional issues in the year after the shooting, I had to ask and answer the question, how could two 18-year-old boys plan and hope to carry out the execution of hundreds of their fellow classmates and teachers? It was Patrick Ireland's charge to forgive them that drove my research. While volumes have been written about Eric and Dylan since the shootings, I simply conclude that they chose to body an evil force. I came to know the family of one of the shooters personally. I have church members who were best friends with the other. I can tell you they are wonderful people no different from you or me. They face the challenge of raising teenagers As someone who has raised three teenagers myself, I identify with their pain. Many parents of troubled teenagers could tell you and have told me it could have been my kid. Somewhere, Eric and Dylan's lives went awry. I don't blame their parents or their families. I blame Eric and Dylan and hold them accountable. I have also forgiven them. I contend that the spark of God was not completely snuffed out in Eric and Dylan's lives. I believe that up until the day of the shootings, the divine spirit with them was working, moving, pushing, trying to realign their lives. The moment they pulled the trigger, I believe there was a deep sigh of divine grief. However, I also agree with Pat Patrick's statement They didn't know what they were doing. The words echo Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's not that Patrick or Jesus did not want to hold the perpetrators accountable. Instead, it's a profound insight that keeps us from playing God. While Eric and Dylan used their free will to choose this violence, Were there extenuating circumstances that none of us were aware of? 
Were their psyches affected by a mental illness that made them vulnerable to violent behavior? Can an 18-year-old completely understand the devastation that he is going to wreak? No. I don't think so. Patrick's insight that the two teenagers did not know what they were doing encourages me to hold on to their humanity. By holding on to their humanity, I preserve my own. To be honest, half the time I don't understand my own motivations. How could I ever presume to fully understand someone else's? I forgave them because I know that I too need to be forgiven. In the wake of my own mistakes and errors, I also stand in need of mercy. They were human. I'm human. And you are human. At times, we are messy creations. We were created in the image of God, yet somehow there must be a ward on the divine chin because we all have that blemish. We are perfect and flawed, whole but broken, divine yet human. We were sent into the world to unleash divine potential. Can it be that the greatest potential is to forgive and be forgiven? We have the potential to forgive someone else, primarily to practice the most difficult aspect of life, to forgive oneself. It is potential that I hope to realize. Those are my memories 20 years ago. 20 years ago, and I still work to figure out exactly what happened and what it means to me, what it means to Columbine, what it means to this church, and literally what it means around the nation and even around the world. The Columbine shootings were a watershed event for American history as we began to understand school violence, trauma, and basically gun violence in particular. On this anniversary, I think about Good Friday. I also think about Easter and the good news and the hope of Christ's resurrection. Because I have felt it in my own life, and I have felt it in this church and community, that up out of the ashes of pain comes the hope of new life. So here's the Steve Poos Benson podcast for today. I hope that you find a sense of hope in the middle of your darkness, that you too will feel the power of Easter Sunday and resurrection. Take a moment this coming Saturday and join with us in remembering the shootings at Columbine High School. Thank you for joining me today. We'll see you.